Welcome to He Sang, She Sang from Classical New York, WQXR. I'm Marin Lazian. And I'm Jeff Spurgeon from Mike Schaub. And today we're talking about Bellini's I Puritani. Joining us in the studio, stage director Sarah Myers. She's been a member of the directing staff at the Metropolitan Opera since 2006. And Sarah's directing the revival of the 1976 production of I Puritani, which opens at the Met in two days, which means that Sarah is a very busy lady. In fact, she's running to a rehearsal right after this. So thank you so much for stopping in to talk to us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I should also say, full disclosure, Sarah directed me in the first full-length opera that I ever performed in. What was it? It was L'Enfant et les Sortilèges. Oh, lovely. And her yeah. was the star. She I was, was the L'Enfant. Oh, yes. that's lovely. I was the young boy. I still have the wig at home, <laughs> um, which occasionally great. pops up and scares the crap out I of me. I think you could still convincingly play a six-year-old boy. Thank I you. Think that would be... Thank you. That's the nicest thing anyone said to me all morning. So, Sarah, let's talk about this story a little bit. It's a love story set during the English Civil War in the mid-1600s, and it's a conflict between the royalists who support Charles I and the rebellious Puritans led by Oliver Cromwell. So when the opera begins, Charles I has already been executed by the revolutionaries, the Puritans, but the battle is still raging in the conflict of the opera. So, Sarah, we wouldn't normally associate Puritans with passionate operatic singing. I don't think we'd associate them with singing at all. Music was not one of their things. I don't know, pious hymns, chaste, modest, pious hymns. Maybe. When people hear the title of the opera, if they're not already familiar with it, it can be slightly off-putting. Not many people want to go to see an opera about Puritans. And a lot of people are somewhat surprised to find that it's even about the English Puritans. They envision, you know, Thanksgiving and, and pilgrims and all that sort of thing. So... There's a little bit of preface that has to be um, made to get people excited about E. Puritani as an opera if they're not already familiar with Isn't it. Isn't it? But it's really just a love story. Isn't it just, it is uh, just a love story. It actually has about as much to do with, with Puritans, Puritans and the English, and English Civil, Civil War, War yeah. as, you know, even less so than Madame Butterfly I, has to do with Japan. I was going to say, we don't necessarily need the bullfighter to have Carmen get in trouble with Don Jose. So It's one of the more absurd stories out there for opera, honestly. <laughs> and as a director, it is a bit the bane of my existence, the story, because... Because the story as it is doesn't make sense. You could just do an opera in concert and get about as much done. Everything's in the music. Don't tell anybody. It's just people talking. That's yes. all it is. And and these moments of suspended time that, in a way, creating the dramatic vehicle for that is actually rather difficult especially with an opera in which the story doesn't offer a logical reason for the action to stop for significant periods of time. It's an unfortunate opera in that, you know, it's this conflict, right? You have a Romeo and Juliet story. Arturo is on the side of the royalists. Elvira is the daughter of the head of the household of the Puritans. Oh, and just just to draw out one confusing point, it's not Elvira. That's the Oak Ridge Boys song from 30 years ago. (laughs) This is Elvira. And Important distinction. Thank well, you for clarifying. You just, people may want to know. That's my point. All right. Sorry. And so you have them on opposite sides, but the opera begins and the Puritans have granted Arturo access to their stronghold. They've let him in. They're going to let them get married. So you start off with the happy ending. Then, you know, plot twist, plot twist, plot twist. He runs off. She goes crazy. 
And then we get to the end of the opera, the war is over, and he's pardoned and happy ending. So we end the opera where we began it. So there's no, there's no real dramatic journey for anyone except for um, the prisoner who happens to be the queen, who's actually kind of a side character in the story. But she's the only one who actually gets any sort of a journey. <laughs> Everybody else ends up basically back where they began. So it's not exactly a satisfying story in that way. But the music takes you on this very complex journey and, and the characters evolve through their vocal lines. And that is where the action happens. You know, I shouldn't say this as a director, but as you said, it's almost better served in a concert format because then your focus is entirely on the voices. So what we have tried to do, especially with a production that is as old and as traditional as this one is, is to structure it in such a way that we justify the stillness, that we treat it almost like a living painting, so that there's a reason for the same sort of focus on the vocal performance, on the dynamism of that performance. Right. And that brings us to this idea of, of bel canto singing, right? This is a, a typical bel canto opera. And bel canto literally means beautiful singing. So this kind of fits the mold exactly. I think that we could say that there are three great bel canto composers. Rossini is the most famous, and then Donizetti, and then we've got this guy, Bellini, who is one of those composers from an enormous pantheon of great musicians, all who expired before they were age 40. And fortunately for him, he died shortly after I Puritani was premiered, and it was a big hit. So at least he died... With a success. Imagine if he'd lived a little longer and had a decent librettist, <laughs> what we could have heard from him. Well, that's the thing. How much do we blame on Count Pepoli for this libretto? Um, I am not a fan. <laughs> I, I, I would have very strong words to share with him if he and I were to meet <laughs> in modern day. There's so many holes in the story and so many abrupt emotional shifts that aren't, you know, of course she goes crazy. So having those emotional shifts makes sense for her character, but other characters who do a complete about-face out of nowhere. You know, there's the Act 2 duet between the bass and the baritone where Elvira's uncle is begging for mercy for Arturo for the first half of it, and then all of a sudden turns around and says, okay, but if he shows up with an army, we kill him. And then they sing this incredible military duet about, you know, love of their homeland and country, and it just comes out of nowhere. So those sorts of moments are hard to make work dramatically, and those are the things we struggle with. It's so ironic, too, because a bad book can sink a show so fast. This one has a terrible book, and yet it was a huge hit right from the get-go. So it tells us something about the different ways that people encountered art Yes. Then from the way that we encounter it And it now. still has um, a hugely loyal following. I mean, I've heard people in the past month tell me that Puritani is their absolute favorite opera, that it is the best opera, that it is better than, you know, many operas that I consider to be masterpieces, not just musically, but also <laughs> theatrically. And I, I hear this routinely, and it's because the music is actually rather extraordinary. And because when sung 
properly when sung with the drama and the technique and the power that a, that a real bel canto singer can bring, it is absolutely thrilling. It it's take you off your seat, exciting. But that also puts all of the pressure on the singers, really, at the end of the day. It's all on them because if they don't bring that level of artistry, there's nothing there. There's nothing worth coming to hear. So, Sarah, how do you help the singers to bring forth things that aren't in the music in order to offer opera goers something not only to hear but to see? One of the things that Maestro Benini, who is our conductor, said that has um, stuck with me, and I've worked with him many times now, is that with Bellini, it's not about the music, it's not about the text, it's about the dramatic moment. So what he was drawn to, and you can tell, you know, he picked the opera because it has a mad scene for the soprano and, and because of the, you know, dramatic situation in which the tenor comes back in the third act, these are the things that appeal to him. And those are the moments that he brought to life. He picked up on what it would be like to re-encounter the lover who you believe has jilted you when he feels he has a completely justifiable reason for having left you. And that scenario is what inspired him. And we can play that scenario very much in terms of what people know and, and are familiar with. We know what it's like to be betrayed. We know what it's like to be abandoned. We can ignore to a certain extent the ridiculous, you know, the ridiculous construct that gets us there and focus on those emotions and, and try to bring those to life through, through their voices. That brings, me, brings to mind my favorite definition of opera, which I got from a European director who I would love to credit and I've forgotten his name. But he said, opera is life with the boring parts left out. And so in this opera, through these amazing bel canto lines – you experience these deep personal emotions, these absolute human experiences that are common to us today, were common in Bellini's time, and were common when the roundheads were fighting the royalists too. So it's the common human experience. And Sarah, you mentioned how much of this falls squarely on the shoulders of these bel canto singers who have to bring that all to life. What do they bring? What's the special artistry of bel canto singing? So it's interesting, you know, we talk about bel canto as beautiful singing, but it's actually, for me, it's much more than that. It is about the theater and the drama being inserted into the music, being handled with the voice. These are singers who can actually act so convincingly, so persuasively with their voices that seeing them is just an enhancement of what you would already experience just by listening. The voice can do absolutely miraculous things. And this is the art form that really demonstrates that. When you hear someone, for example, like Deanna Damrau, go through seven different thoughts and four different emotions over the course of one sustained note, you know exactly what she's thinking. And if you're looking at her face, it's just that much clearer, but it's there already in the voice. The aggression, the, the passion, the romance, it can all be done through the inflection of the voice and through the colors that they can create with their vocal sound. And then also just the sheer beauty of a certain high note. But for me, I don't spend the whole opera listening for those beautifully sung high notes. I'm listening for the way in which I, I, I'm actually physically experiencing an emotion because of how someone is singing. So although this famous mad scene in this opera does in fact have high notes and lots of vocal <laughs> gymnastics, it also has what you're talking about, this breadth and wealth of emotion and experience that happens over the course of 
How many minutes? It's, you know, it actually goes by surprisingly quickly, but it's 12 sustained minutes. It's almost a monodrama, actually, in a way. And one of the things I think is really interesting about this opera is that Elvira's madness is, it's different from the the madness that we encounter um, with someone like Lucia. Her madness is often actually lucidity. She's She's often talking about the situation that has taken place with complete clarity. She's she's grieving for the man who left her and for having been abandoned. At times she thinks she sees him, but that's not actually a constant state for her. She goes in and out of clarity. What's also frustrating is that that continues long into the third act and you keep thinking she's gotten, you know, she's come back to sanity and then she keeps going crazy again, which makes it very difficult for the performer to find any sort of arc because every time she comes to a point of knowing where she is and who she's with, she has to then drop back into crazy land right. two seconds later with very little justification. Again, thank you, Count Topoli. <laughs> um, so that is a challenge. But the beautiful thing about the mad scene is that she, when she's crazy, she's actually happy. But then when she's sane, she is in the depths of most severe tragedy. And she really has to go back and forth between these two emotional extremes and navigate that and all of the all of the emotions that are in between at the same time. And it's just purely a virtuosic acting performance coupled with the most difficult vocal performance that you can imagine. This week on He Sang, She Sang, we are talking about Bellini's I Puritani. And in the studio with us, we have director Sarah Myers. So we talked a little bit about the duet between the two men and the mad scene. Are there any other great musical moments that you would tell people to listen out for? Yes, I think, you know... There are the the big highlights that people who are familiar with the opera will know. There's the amazing tenor aria in the third act of Credeasi Misera, which is it's just incredible writing, and it's also got some pretty exciting high notes. What's what's that aria about? Um, it is the aria that he sings, Arturo sings, when he has he's returned in the third act. He is reunited with Elvira, and after they have their lovers quarrel about you know who left whom and who did you know <laughs> and who was justified in in doing what they did. They do reunite. They, she seems sane for a second, but then everybody comes rushing on stage and she hears sounds and she goes nuts again. And, and he is essentially arrested. And we don't yet know that the war is over, so the Puritans are getting ready to kill him, essentially. And in that moment, Elvira comes back to sanity but is also driven as low as she has ever been. And that misery that she is suffering Arturo basically asks, demands mercy for her pain. It's tricky because he's kind of saying, don't kill me so quickly so that my beloved doesn't suffer for another second. But it's expressed in profoundly beautiful terms. <laughs> and, it's, and it sounds more generous than, it, than at first it might seem. <laughs> Oh, 
it's a truly beautiful moment. And also you can hear in that, in that aria, which is also an ensemble, you can hear um, a lot of the drama. You can hear the moment where the two of them do finally come together and the music quiets down. And it's almost as though, you know, if you had a camera, you would zoom in on the two of them and everyone else would just blur into, into nothing behind them. To the extent we can, they come to the front of the stage. You know, we don't have the same abilities as film, but it does feel very cinematic. And then you can hear in the same section where the chorus comes and rips them apart again. And those two musical moments, I think, are really exciting. But for me, also, the thing that I, I really love about this opera are the small touches. There are moments, you know, where in the duet between her uncle Giorgio and, and Elvira, the moment where he finally <laughs> explains what happened and that how he convinced her father to let her marry Arturo is this beautiful story told with this exquisite melody line and all of these, it's just a father telling a story to his daughter. I know their uncle and, and niece, but essentially he's her father figure. And it feels so loving and so paternal and that intimacy that is created in that moment is just beautiful to me. how much affection there is between Giorgio and Elvira. And we're not the only ones who think so. Let's hear from a man who has some first-hand experience with this character. I'm speaking with bass baritone Luca Pizzoroni, who is singing the role of Giorgio in Bellini's opera I Puritani at the Met. Luca, who is Giorgio? Giorgio is the uncle of Elvira, who is the soprano, and she's the protagonist of the piece. And I love to think that he's some kind of um, father figure for her, and uh, he's a little bit the voice of reason. I like that um, this kind of role, bass baritone roles, uh, have always this kind of calm in them and this idea that they have seen everything in life and they always have a, a good advice to give to them. And the great thing about this production that I like particularly is the incredible sweet relationship that he has with Elvira. And I love that and I love to play it. And this is your first time singing this role, is that right? Yes, it's terrifying, <laughs> especially it? to do it at the Met. And um, I quote a great colleague of mine who said, you never know if you can sing a role until you actually sing it. <laughs> and I, it's really because at the beginning you're like, oh, I cannot do that. And then you sing it and you're like, actually, it really fits my voice very well. Yeah. And so I'm really happy that I get to sing this role. There's something about rising to a challenge. You become invested and motivated and i think that you actually grow into new roles like that it's it's maybe a little bit beyond your reach right at the start but completely agree you should have seen me i will start studying golo now and you should have seen me the first three days i will study walk out of my bedroom go to my wife and say there is no way i can do this <laughs> there is no way i can do this and then eventually when you settle down you realize that it's actually very good because you push yourself and you realize that you can do things that you never thought you could. So, speaking of Puritani again, opera has a lot of 
really unbelievable plots, you know, lots of things that would never, ever happen in real life. And that's part of the fun, right? It's theater. Ipuritani. There's a lot of these (laughs) question marks in the plot. It's really many. many. But uh, I think you you shouldn't look at the plot to make sense of the piece. I think the plot is an excuse an excuse to talk about feelings and to talk about the struggle of the protagonist and to talk about what people go through. And it's all about the love, the fact that she thought he left her. And so I always say, forget the plot. Just immerse yourself into the music and the words. I'll be honest with you. I always cry at the end of Act One in the big concertato because when she is heard by herself in the middle and she sings this lamento, if you only listen to the music and you feel the desperation in the music and the words, I don't need to know if the plot is believable. It is so gorgeous and every word means something. So I just forget about the plot, just focus on the beauty of the music. So in terms of the music, you do have a few great numbers in this opera, one of which the, is the duet with the character Ricardo, yes. Suoni la tromba, Sound the Trumpet. Yes. There's a, a video on YouTube of you singing this duet with the great baritone, Thomas Hampson. Yes. You know Thomas pretty well, don't you? A little bit. Yeah. You know, just... Uh, how, do you, how do you know that guy? I've known him now for 15 years. We met in Salzburg in 2002. And, uh, you know, to make the story short, I, I married his stepdaughter. So we have been uh, we have been in the family for now 15 years. And uh, we do a very fun program called No Tenors Allowed, <laughs> <laughs> we, where we sing duets and arias and, and musical theater and uh, this is one of the, the pieces that we, we sing a lot together, and it's, it's, it's great fun. It's really great fun. So no tenors allowed. Yes. You are a bass baritone. Is that just because you couldn't choose? You, you said bass baritone. I don't know. I'll, I'll just be a bass baritone. I'll no, I always say I'm a tenor trapped in a bass baritone body. Oh, no. I always wanted to be a tenor. And, um, and after I became a bass baritone, I said to myself, it could have been much worse. I have a phenomenal repertoire, so stop complaining about it. It is some phenomenal repertoire. And if you hadn't been a singer, yes, what would you have been? Do you know? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. I'm actually imagining me retiring, and then I'm like, what would you do? And it's not a... As not an easy answer. I think I would need like a, a year of sabbatical to detox <laughs> before sure. before finding something else. I think this is not a profession. This is more like a, how you say, a call, like a, a destiny more yeah. than anything. So when I'm on stage, I'll always give 100% because I am really lucky that I get to do what I love. I decided when I was 11 that I wanted to become uh, an opera singer. Really? Yeah, I saw a commercial with Pavarotti singing, and I knew that this is what uh, I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So it's going to be difficult for me to choose something else. It's amazing that you discovered this so young, and 
you had the voice to, to match I it. I know, right? Because you couldn't have known that. No, because then. I wanted also to be a football player. But that it was, I had absolutely no attitude for that. I was <laughs> terrible. And so, thank God, I decided to become an opera singer and I happened to have a Enough voice. Football. Well, you're very tall. Maybe basketball would have worked for you. Uh, but... No, I just, I, I'm not a, um, I never liked sport when I was a young boy. I never liked it. I always liked to hang around with older people listening to to opera. There was something about the music that spoke to me. It was like a language for me. And, uh, you know, I think there is, uh, music arrives where Sometimes words cannot reach, you know, and there is something in the music that express something for me that sometimes I can't, I can't express in words, but I can express it with singing and with music. I think that's an important point, especially for people who maybe haven't found a way to understand or to love opera and classical music in general. But opera can feel very foreign to people. It can seem very different from the other music that they listen to. Do you find that? I understand. I think also sometimes we are, we don't trust the music enough because I had a performance in in London once of Notre de Figaro, uh, a matinee with only kids from eight to thirteen, two thousand kids in the in, in the auditorium, and we didn't do a reduction. We did the entire Notre de Figaro. Oh wow! And I thought they're going to be yawning, they're going to be bored, and in fact, it was the best audience I have ever had. And you could see that they connected with everything that we said, despite the fact that we sang in Italian. And at the end, they went crazy. Because I think if you are open and you're allowed to be surprised by the music, anybody can connect to it. Anybody. Even if it's, you grew up in the middle of you know, the countryside in, in Britain and you're listening to an um, opera composed by the Austrian in Italian. It, it's just something about it that I think speaks to our souls. And a lot of time I think we should trust it more and believe in it more. I agree. So you saw that commercial with, with Pavarotti? Yes. Is that what you said? Was that your first experience hearing opera? No, my first experience, I, I have, it was a summer. I was nine years old, and my grandfather had a collection of fair diarias. And I remember he had one of these music cassette reader, and I heard Ella Jemima Mo by Giuseppe Verdi from Don Carlo, sung by Boris Christoph. And I remember I stopped because I couldn't believe a, a, a body, a human body, could produce such sound. And I, from that moment on, I listened to all the Verdi music. And, and by 11, I told you, by 11, I knew that that, that was it. That was absolutely it. Yep. I knew that was my, what I wanted to do. There was nothing else I cared about. Well, maybe one of that room full of 2,000 kids had an experience like you did and walked away and said... That's, that's, I, that's what I do it every night, that I, only, I really hope that there is one kid that, you know, is completely blown away by the music and he changes his life in a positive way. Yeah. So I really hope that once in a while that happens. So you travel a lot. Yes. And research tells me that both your wife... And your two dogs yes, get correct. to travel with you. Tell me about these dogs. Uh, I have I have a golden retriever, Lenny, from Leonard Bernstein, and <laughs> a miniature dachshund, Tristan, 
because the problem with the miniature dachshund is he barks nonstop. So <laughs> I really thought about a tenor voice in an opera that lasts for six hours. So I thought we thought Tristan would, would be a perfect name for him. And I'm lucky because I, they get to travel with me. And so they make my job uh, my life bearable, I have to say, because as much as I like performing, I don't like to be by myself. I hate to be by myself, actually. And so when you travel so much like I do that, and, you know, every seven, eight weeks you are in another city for such a long time, uh, or when you do concert, that means a different city every week, it's it's really difficult. But traveling with every all my family, I never miss home. I feel at home anywhere I am. And so it keeps me sane and it keeps me happy. Are they good travelers? They're awesome, actually, I have to say. And the funny thing is that as soon as I take out my suitcase, the small dogs goes inside. <laughs> and and the funny thing is that he sleeps in the suitcase the night before we leave because he just wants to make sure it's like, uh, I want to come with you, you know, you know that I'm coming with you. So so it's it's really cute. And they're wonderful at traveling, wonderful. And I like that every... Before every performance, I go out with them, and after every show, I go out with them. And it's some kind of a routine for me, and also is also is an activity that I really enjoy doing. Are there any other routines that you have that are specific to singing, anything that you always do? I always work out. I always go for a run. I always stretch. I always move my body because I believe that if my body is not warmed up, my voice is not warmed up. And you can ask anybody at the metal, and as a matter of fact, in every opera house, if before a show you always see me jogging on stage, <laughs> and you know, everybody think I'm a little bit cuckoo, crazy, <laughs> but this is what I do. You know, everybody's singing in the dressing room, and you see me naturally doing rounds on stage jogging, and everybody thinks I'm, uh, you know, I'm not really normal, but <laughs> it works for me, so... Well, it's, singing is 100% physical, and yeah. your body is your instrument, yes. ultimately. So if your body is warmed up yeah. and awake, then your voice follows suit. Absolutely. Yeah. What's the best piece of advice you've been given as a singer? Um, I was coaching Maometto Secondo with Jose Van Damme, one of the greatest bass baritone who ever lived. And I remember starting and trying to make my voice darker. And he stopped me immediately after what, two bars. He said to me, what are you doing? I said, I, I tried to sing. He said, this is not your voice. And I said, really? And he said, no, there's no way that this is your voice. And so he said to me, always sing with your own voice. Don't try to sound like somebody else. Because he said, if you work on your own instrument, you can develop. If you're trying to imitate somebody, you will never, first, you will never be you, and second, your instrument will never develop properly. And I have to say this is, was a, a major change in my attitude towards my own instrument. You really need to be yourself. And I think it's great because I think this art form is about being unique. And what Sam Remy can bring to it is completely different of what I can bring to it. And that's what we can repeat the same opera for such a long period of time because the interpreter can really make a, such a big difference. So I, I love the fact that everybody's so unique. That's a very good piece of advice. Can you remember both your most exciting moment on stage and your scariest? 
But scariest, I can tell you, it's, um, it's every night when I sing before I walk on stage. Every night, even if I've been doing this for such a long time, there are two minutes before I walk, walk on stage that I'm going, Jesus, I don't <laughs> want to do this. Why am I doing this? <laughs> I am really backstage. And then, fun enough, as soon as I walk into the light, I just I forget about being afraid. But it's terrifying. It's terrifying to perform in front of an audience. I always say, as long as, as soon as there are two people in a room, it's a performance. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a performance. So it, for me, is is every show is is like this. And the most exciting. Oh, I did. I have so many highlights in my career, and it would be really it would take an entire program to mention them. Can you imagine for, you know, I used to listen to the radio broadcast of the Met from Italy. Every Saturday evening, all my friends would go out and have fun and party and I would be at home listening to opera. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> and, and, you know, and every time it was, you know, Pavarotti, Paul Plischka, Sam Remy, conducted by James Levine. Pavarotti and René Fleming, conducted by James Levine. You know, and so when you get to work with somebody like this, I could not even believe the first time I came here and I got to, to work with him. There are moments of my career that I tell you I will never forget. And I will never forget the really small details. Like, I remember with Levine here at the Met, like, doing a nice rubato or beautiful sound, and he will look at you and smile at you like it was the best thing you've ever done in your life. And I tell you, you live, I live for something like this when a conductor looks at you and it's like, oh, I like that. I really, it was really a special moment. Is it even more special than the applause at the end for you? Um, yeah, there is... Um, it's really nice to hear that you connected with the audience and they liked what you do. But there are certain moments about musical things that probably the audience cannot really grasp because they were not part of the rehearsal process. Mm -hmm. That maybe you struggle with something for three weeks and all of a sudden it happens and the conductor is so happy because he had been supporting you so much that you can do that because he knew all along that you could do it. That is, they are really rewarding. Well, I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Yeah. Thank you so much, Thank Luca so Pizzoni, for, for coming and speaking. And we look forward to hearing you, Puritani, this Saturday on the radio broadcast. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. I want to ask you, Sarah Myers, how did you come to opera? And how did you come to directing opera? Was it from theater or was it from opera first? Separate tracks, pursuing a love of music, you know, singing in chorus when I was in high school, listening to WQXR a lot when I was growing up because my dad had it on every time we got in the car. And then also a love of theater, love of performing. I did plays and all that stuff in high school and in, into college and I pursued those things independently until I discovered musicals, and that was exciting. But then I went to see my first opera rather late, actually. I think I was about 13 or 14. Which opera was it? It was Madame Butterfly. That's it a was, decent start. It's a decent start. It was at the Met, mm -hmm. and it was absolutely revelation for me. It was I, I completely transformed my life at that point and listened to every Maria Callas recording that ever existed. And I knew I'd found something in which I could pour all of my energies and all of the things that I loved in one location, which is actually kind of rare to find something that fulfills you in so many different ways. I wasn't sure that I was going to do it professionally or how I was going to do it professionally, but I, I just felt like it was always going to be a part of my life. And then, you know, 
coincidentally, I went to uh, a college where we could do lots of operas when I was an undergrad, and then I even came back a little bit in my postgraduate years. And uh, there was the opportunity to experience opera in so many different ways, and I found that directing was just a lot of fun and also without the pressure of actually having to be on stage. So that was an added bonus. I'm going to try not to take it personally that Sarah didn't say that my portrayal of a six-year-old boy wasn't the turning point in her life. <laughs> it was, was one of many. <laughs> there you go. Well done. Thank you. Thank well you. done. So as a director and also someone who has been on stage and performed different things, there's a way of performing that involves bringing in some of your own life experience to inform your character and I'm wondering if it works the other way ever for you, that as a director, what happens on stage actually gives you something to bring back into your personal life. What she's really asking you, you know, is what's the longest temper tantrum you've ever thrown? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, oh, that's a fascinating question. I have not yet had any mad scenes, though I have had <laughs> rehearsals that have brought me close. <laughs> Um, it's interesting. It's a fascinating question. I wonder. I mean, absolutely. I will say that there are operas that I have worked on that have almost infected my life in a, in, you know, to the negative. And there are operas that I am almost unwilling to work on in the future because of, of the degree to which they have. Oh, I, I'm dying yeah, to like know. What? I'm dying for a couple of examples. If you can bear to part with I'm going to offend some of your some of your opera fans with this. I love Berg, and I think Wozzeck is an amazing opera, but I think it makes people, it, it does very bad things to people who spend a lot of time with it. I think the story and and these characters and also the aggression that you feel in the music can drive you crazy. I'm not saying I won't ever do it again, but if I do it again, I'm going to regularly schedule massages <laughs> and and trips to the zoo or something. You know, well, no, not the zoo. The zoo would be probably the worst place don't to go. go. To don't go to the zoo, Sarah. Don't go I to the have zoo. To think of something completely different. You know, spend time in you know Disney World or something like that. Though that's also probably twisted. You just can't escape. I can't see, escape. It. That's the problem. Everything you start to see through that lens, and that truly is potentially um, disheartening. Well, it speaks to the power of art, though, and the fact that this some of this material can be very dangerous dangerous because of the ways that we learn to think about how human beings behave and, and the way that opera composers and librettists focus that into our point of view. It's time for our YouTube picks, where we tell you about some of our favorite performances that you can watch to get even more familiar with Ipuritani. Sarah, what do you have? Perhaps I'm biased, but I would uh, point people in the direction of our Met production, um, and there are several YouTube clips of it online because there was a beautiful HD broadcast that was done of it in 2006-2007. And in particular, I'm a fan of, uh, you can look up Anna Netrebko doing the mad scene. I particularly like the first half of it, actually, where you, you see her going back and forth between all of the different emotions that she experiences and all of the range in between, and it's one of those occasions in which, indeed, you do enhance the experience of the music by watching her because she gives you so much in addition to what she's doing vocally. That's the production where she ends up on her back with her head sort of dangling into the pit, isn't yes. it? Yes, and that is what people remember. That is the legendary moment and, and certainly was an extremely impressive feat of you know virtuosic singing. But for me, it's actually the stuff that comes before that is really rewarding yeah. and a really good introduction to what this art form can be. Why? 
Why is that better than than seeing Anna Trebko with her neck bent into the pit and yet still singing <laughs> yet still bel singing. canto? I mean, that's that's the showmanship of it, right? And that is part of it. It's a little bit. That moment for me is a little bit like you know the high flying acrobatics at the circus. And so it's impressive, but you're so impressed by the uh, by the event itself, by the fact that she's physically doing this upside down, that you're not thinking about character context where she is in, in this scene. So you like her when she's, she's deep in the emotional experience. Of I the think story. that's what what really impressed me about her performance. Actually, was her her ability to stay within the thoughts. There's a moment where she approaches Ricardo, the man who she was supposed to marry, and he's crying. And she says, oh, he's weeping. He must have loved someone. And says to him, if you are crying, then you must have experienced love. And this is, of course, the man who loves her. And as she's saying it, the extent of her suffering is evident and just she's nearly racked with pain. She still manages to sing it beautifully, but it's almost heaving in, in her body. And that, to me, is is incredibly moving. And it's those subtle things that I find to be really impressive. And I think that people don't realize how difficult that is. It's easy to see that singing upside down, it looks hard and it, it is hard, but you don't realize how difficult just those subtle emotional shifts can be. Yeah, it's a really beautiful performance. Jeff, what have you got? All right, I have just a little bit of the actual Met production that's playing right now with Alexei Markov and Luca Pizzaroni as Ricardo and Giorgio. This is the duet from the end of Act Two, where Ricardo and Giorgio agree to join forces and go out and fight a battle because that's what real men do in opera. I, I like this for two reasons. One is that when we think of bel canto opera, we don't usually think of men's low voices. Maybe the tenor, and certainly the sopranos, but we don't think of the lower voices very often. So here we have two big-voiced, lower-voiced men doing a big production in bel canto style. Uh, the other reason that I like this is that when you see this video, it's a wonderful illustration of what Sarah has been talking about in terms of the production at the Met now. And she talked about this opera being kind of static, you know, not a lot happens. So, she said, how about the living portrait idea? And I think that this particular video, it's just a couple of minutes long, because it's really just the last, sort of the last go-round of this long duet they have. But it shows them in this idea of of a tableau and a, and a painting come to life on the stage of the Met. So it has, for me at least, that attraction as well as the singing. Great. Well, I'm going to take us up to those high voices okay, that you mentioned. Well, that's where we, that's fine. That's where we think bel canto should be. Yes. And whether it should or shouldn't, that's where we're going. So my video is of Ate Okada, To You, My Dear, which is sort of a tenor aria, sort of a duet, sort of an ensemble number. It's well, a little bit of all of them. But that's how we Puritani is. That's, so how, that's how it rolls. That's right. Um, but... Essentially, it's the love song that Arturo sings to Elvira. It's when they've received her father's blessing to be together. And it's just this gorgeous, soaring melody where he's singing to her about his love and about how she brings him all of this happiness and joy. This production is from the Teatro Real in Madrid, and it's a really beautiful set. The floor is covered in white sand, and there are just countless chandeliers that descend. It's very atmospheric. And the two singers that star in this video are Javier Camarena as Arturo 
and Deanna Damrau as Elvira, so the two principal singers that are starring at the Met right now. And they just have this beautiful dynamic between them. Also, Camarena's high C-sharp in this aria doesn't hurt. It's so spectacular. (laughs) Um, And I think Deanna Damrau thinks so, too. You can sort of see the pleasure (laughs) on her face as she listens to him sing of his love. So I heartily recommend this video. You can check out these videos at the He Sang, She Sang show page at wqxr.org. And while you're hanging out there, it would be very nice for us if you'd leave a comment and let us know what you thought of the whole enterprise we're doing here. And if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your audio magic. Our guest today was director Sarah Myers. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. He Sang, She Sang is a production of Classical New York WQXR. For Mike Schaub, I'm Jeff Spurgeon. And I'm Marin Lazian. Thank you for listening.